This week on the Recruitment Flex, Silicon Valley Bank shuts down. Will it cascade down to the rest of the economy? AI will change recruitment. The question is, will it change you? And HR is more focused on spotting a lie on a resume than spotting a good candidate. The Recruitment Flex starts right after these messages from our partners, Rectex. Shelly, let's face it. Texting candidates is the easiest way to hire quicker today. But your cell phone doesn't connect to your ATS. You're sharing your personal number with strangers. That's pretty scary, right, Shelly? And Mm. it's not even legally compliant. Mm, This is where our friends at Rectex come in. They've created simple yet powerful text recruiting software that works with your ATS. Plus, it's designed by recruiters for recruiters, so you know it works. To learn more and book a demo, visit www.rectxt.com, mention the Recruitment Flex, and get 10% off annual plans. Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Bonjour and welcome to the Recruitment Flex. Shelly, are you done with winter? Because you had to drive in a snowstorm oh. yesterday. I did. I did. And oh my God, do you know what I hate the most? My car is always dirty. Like always. <laughs> I had to get a refill of windshield wiper fluid to come back. And what's even worse, like I'm already at the two and a half hours mark driving back. And okay. I missed the turn, the last turn that would take me back over to the west side of the city. And I ended up halfway out to Bragg Creek. <laughs> I kept thinking, well, there's got to be a turnoff somewhere. And I kept going. I am like 17 kilometers outside the city on my way to Bragg Creek. I finally found somewhere to pull in and turn around and go back. Oh, my God. I was in the car coming back for three and a half hours. If you missed that exit, you are screwed. You ended up in Bragg Creek which is a beautiful place to go visit. So maybe you get some nice scenery and some farmland and all that stuff. There are some mansion houses out along that highway. Unbelievable. Have you ever seen the house, the mansion? It's the gaudiest mansion ever. It looks like from the 1920s and it's got the big gold statues and you've seen that one, right? I have. And I found out who owns it. Oh, who owns it? Just recently, a friend of mine and her husband. Your friend owns it? No, a friend of mine and her husband are realtors. Okay. And they were showing another couple this penthouse downtown. And the listing realtor said something about the family that owns it is the same family that owns the mansion out west of the city. And it is generationally owned. So the parents still live in China. But it's all of their kids that live at this house. But then they also own two penthouses in these towers that are right down on Stampede Park. And personally, I think it's ugly. There's no trees around it. There's no landscaping. It's out in the middle of nowhere. And it's so big and so gaudy. Yeah. So Shelly, have you been following what's going on with Silicon Valley Bank at all? Yes. God, that seems like that's all you hear about on the news. What's your take on it? Let's go through it a little bit and I'll explain what the impact to work could be. For people that haven't been following, Silicon Valley Bank 
deposit base is very heavily reliant on startup firms in the tech industry. Like a lot of the tech firms, they triple in size after the pandemic era tech boom. So rather than investing all those deposit into other startups or venture firms, the bank placed a sizable share of the funds into long-term treasury bonds and mortgage bonds, which typically deliver small but reliable returns amid low interest rates. So they're taking short-term deposit and putting into a long-term investment, Hmm. which is not good news if people start pulling money from the bank. And what they realized, uh, this was on March 8th, they announced a $1.8 billion loss on the sale of securities. What they were trying to do is strengthen their balance sheet. But by doing that, it put a lot of eyes on them. And the day after, the shares fell 60% based on investor concerns. So now the rumors coming out, there is like a lot of startup founders, also well-established companies in Silicon Valley are starting to pull money. And when you are pulling more money than you actually have available in liquid assets, well, what happens is the bank collapse. And this happened on March 10th. Everyone went crazy and pulling their money out. Then suddenly Signature Bank, which is a large, well, when I say large bank, it's the 29th largest bank in the US as well, had exactly the same issue and went under. By Friday last week, money was being pulled out. The company was going bankrupt. By Friday night, it was pretty clear that FDIC, which is the insurance company that regulates this and secures deposits up to 250000 And if you think about it, you're a startup founder or you're a regular company that's fairly established. You have $50 million in the bank and you're only insured 250000 which for a lot of those companies doesn't even meet payroll. So over the weekend, there was a lot of discussion in tech industry. If the government doesn't step in to protect the depositors, not the bank, and there's a big difference Mm -hmm. when we talk about bailout, the whole banking system might collapse. Anyone that's banking with smaller banks are going to remove that money and start putting it into the big four. So the government with no choice had to come in Sunday night and guarantee that they would ensure the full amount of the deposits, which is where we're at right now. This could have had a massive impact. You can't meet payroll. You can't be solvent. You don't have the money. What do you do? We could have seen up to 100,000 jobs lost early this week if the government hadn't stepped in. On that note, I'm not a fan of the government stepping in. Like You can't be a capitalist and then have the government step in to save you all the time. But I get it because... They could have had a massive impact on the overall economy. What was your thoughts around it? Well, I know they kept playing that reel from Biden. What I found fascinating is the fact that he had to reassure the public that Mm -hmm. the banking system isn't going to fail. And what he made clear was that investors, listen, you guys are on your own. Depositors, like people who were doing business with the bank as putting my money in, making my payroll, etc., they would be protected, but not investors. Yeah, this is another tech story that is blowing up, but I think it could affect the overall economy. Yes, I think that's the biggest fear from everyone is how this is going to affect the economy Mm -hmm. in general, especially with investments. Well, I think there's going to be some cascade of it as well, because if you're listening to different people that are very entrenched into this space, they're basically saying this is the tip of the iceberg. There is a ton of other banks out there that have made 
pretty bad investments overall. And if Silicon Valley Bank had the same amount of deposits that were happening, probably would not have been an issue. But with the rate hike, companies were a lot more careful in investing. There's less business. So the deposits that the bank were getting started to get a lot lower. The economy, Shelley, I'm so glad I'm not Andrew Flowers because I do not understand what's going on because you've been hearing about a recession for two years almost and it really hasn't happened then you're seeing all of these warning signs across the board but then the job numbers come out and they're fucking amazing the latest u.s job numbers came out they were great canada is going to come out and we're expecting pretty good numbers as well so i don't know what this means i'm done guessing Well, I think that's why you need to be an expert in the field. Like, praise be for Andrew Flowers and people like him, because they got to explain this to us. I don't know how you connect the dots on it. Like, it's... On that news and talking about tech, Meta came out yesterday announcing another 10K layoffs and closing 5K open roles and actually saw on LinkedIn just a few minutes ago, a recruiter at Meta posting that he's looking for a job. So obviously a lot of recruiters affected, not really surprised. I think everyone knew that this was coming in to give you context. Like they've laid off 25,000 people this year. It's still only like 30% of the amount of people they've hired since 2020. They just overhired, did a lot of talent hoarding, and now they're letting those people in the market. Yeah. Well, I think Andrew explained it super well for us. It's just a market correction and our fascination to hear bad news about a company that's been so successful for the last 20 years. It's taking delight in the downfall of somebody who's obviously a big player, but it sounds like a big number. But when you explain it the way you just did, it's really not. What about our friends at Amazon? Yeah, I don't know what to make of it. It was called a leaked audio of some HR executives lamenting, ah, we really want to think about who we let go, who was laid off. And we might want to think about inviting them back. I think the reason this was such a sensation, though, was because was HR even involved in how you decide who you let go? Or was this just names on a spreadsheet? It erodes confidence in them as a company. What I got from this article is at an internal town hall, a question was asked to the human resource VP at Amazon Web mm-hmm. Service about the prospect of rehiring Amazon employees that were laid off. Reading what he said, he was trying to placate, yeah, we'd be completely open to rehiring these people. We're actually going to prioritize when we're in a position that we don't have a hiring freeze. Mm-hmm. They were just placating to the employees. They have no plan. They were just telling a story. They can't say, no, we're never going to hire those people again. It was just telling the employees what they wanted to hear in a town hall setting is what I got from this article. I don't think they have oh. any plans. So, you know, it really would be a stupid move not to. Like when we talk about alumni or boomerang employees, they really should have a strategy to maintain relationships with people. They are obviously good enough that you hired them in the first place. And if the reason for the layoffs was purely financial and not performance related, then they should be eligible for rehire. And I think that's what I got from the article. 
they're just saying we need to sift through this and see who is eligible for rehire and put them on our alumni list. People will come back. They will. There's a lot of prestige associated with working for whether it's Meta or with uh, Amazon. Right. Like yeah, especially so- Amazon Web Services, which is where yeah. this question originated from. And you might be right, and I completely agree. If they're going to rehire, look at your alumni, look at those boomerang employees. Do they know who is good and not? And that really depends on how that was structured and how they made that decision of who to let go. But we both know this when they're laying off people. And if you've ever gotten laid off, it might not be the case for you. But they look at the lower performers overall or the ones that they have the most challenge with. So I think a lot of those people are probably not rehirable in my view, but I might be wrong. I don't know. I don't know. I don't when know you're doing that many people though, Serge, they really do look at this like almost clinically. Who was hired most recently or who has a high salary or do they look at it by department or by role? Like I really do think it's way more clinical. I think you're giving them too much credit to think that they have a sophisticated enough system and management that actively participate in your HRIS or HCM, where you've actually got people stack ranked for performance. I don't think so. Well, we will see. We will see what happens. Shelly, what's the tip of the week? The tip of the week. There was a bit of chat going on last week here in Canada. Nordstrom's has decided to pull the plug. I believe the employees were took aback by it. There was 600 Vancouver employees that heard about it through the news. Shame on Nordstrom's for not telling their people first before the press got a hold of it. But the tip of the week would be this. Individuals that work in retail have so many transferable skills that I believe they're overlooked. So my challenge is this. When you are looking to fill roles, look at individuals who are coming from potentially leadership roles or customer care, sales, that sort of thing. Because the report that came out, I think just yesterday, there's like 115,000 unfilled jobs just in Alberta. And they believe it's a skill mismatch. I don't think most people understand that It's not that you can just hire anybody to do this work. The jobs that are unfilled require certain skills. So my challenge is open up your thinking about the roles you need to fill and what skills can be transferable. Well, I think recruiters have a really open mind when it comes to that. But how do you explain that in a way to hiring managers for them to understand both of why we should look at those transferable skills and value it can bring and a reality of the market as well. Because I still talk to a lot of hiring managers that have no concept of the actual market and what the labor mismatch is and how hard it is to find people. And the perfect example, Shelly, I came from retail. I was a regional manager and this recruiting role came up and I'm like, well, I'm good at sales. I love people. I love recruiting for my stores. So I'm going to do this role and fell in love with recruitment. Mm-hmm. The transferable skills were there directly. Absolutely. Tip of the week. Find transferable at- skills. Yes. Exactly. In a tight labor market, you've got to think creatively. A hundred percent. Well, let's jump into recruitment insights. And Shelly, when I say AI in recruitment, what's your first thought? So I don't think this, but I think when you generally say that, 
we're thinking about chatbots or it's no longer talking to human beings that AI has taken over and is making decisions for us. I think that's the fear that most people have when they think about AI in recruitment. Okay. I think that's very valid. I agree with that assessment, but I'm going to pose you the question. Is that a scary thing? Because the number one concern of CEOs right now is recruiting. And we're not doing a good job across the board. It's not only recruiters. So I'm not pinpointing. It's hiring managers. It's everything. There is a ton of gaps. Like you hear all the stories about ghosting, recruiters not getting back to them. And the perfect example of that is I saw a TikTok yesterday that a guy was explaining how he can apply to 120 jobs within minutes. And he does it with a Google extension that he created. So recruiters are here intaking all this shit, right? Like just shit, shit, shit coming at them. And how do you manage that? So our friend, Dr. John Sullivan, I'll call him a friend. I loved him on the show. I don't know if he liked me as much. He definitely liked you. But when I think of thought leaders and really guys that push the limit of how we're thinking in recruitment, Dr. John Sullivan is one of those guys. He wrote one of the most compelling articles of why AI and recruitment is going to be a necessity and we better get behind it or we're going to be left behind. This article, or it's more a think piece, it's laid out in three different sections. One of it is for us to understand why AI will quickly dominate recruitment. The other is visualizing what's that going to look like? Like, how is AI and recruitment going to work together? Then his final thoughts are really focused on how you can get the skeptics behind getting AI more involved in recruitment. I'm going to go through some of the key points. It's a lot. His first point is we better adopt AI because members of the executive committee expect it. They're seeing all the other departments leverage AI from supply chain to sales to marketing, but we're recruiters. We're HR. We're not going to bother. It's not our thing. It goes into the story that we are not taking seriously. If we look at what's happening right now, we don't know supply. We're in situations that we're not workforce planning correctly. And this is not only recruitment. This is an organization itself. We're over hiring and now we have to do painful layoffs. Not a good news story. Mm -hmm. Improving our recruitment results. So right now, the data shows that a mere 19% of hires become a success. 19%. If we start leveraging AI and we get better every step of the way and we increase that to 50%, how big a difference is it? 19%. They talk about baseball being like it's the only sport that you can miss 70% of the time and be a superstar. Mm -hmm. Well, we're missing 81% of the time, 81% of the time using AI actually forces us to become data-driven because the decisions and the processes are being made for us right away. Those were some of the key things that he mentioned that we better get behind it because we're going to be left behind. So when we talk about being scared to be replaced by computers and the human element, well, as humans, hiring is fucked. We are not doing a good job in hiring. If we can leverage AI to become better, 
I'm all for it. So before I jump into the next phase, where are you thinking with those initial points? It's interesting. First of all, let's just define what do we mean by AI? Because I think this is confusing the matter. Are we referring to the use of chat GPT or similar being used in our everyday work? So if that's the case, then it's not a replacement. It is a tool and a refinement. And if we're not using tools that are available to us, well, that's just putting our heads in the sand. Is that what we're referring to here? Yes and no. That is an aspect. But when I look at using chat GPT, sure, it's great. It's an additional tool. But when we talk about AI in general, it's a lot more. It's directly in our process. And it brings me to the next section, how we visualize elements of recruiting that are going to be improved by AI. And let me go through those and then we can figure out if it makes sense or not. His first point is AI will improve employer branding. First hesitation before I read this, I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, how is that going to help True, Think about this. Machine learning will be used to determine the best media and sites for placing branding and recruitment information for each job family. Machine learning will also sort through survey information that is gathered from a sample of potential applicants in order to identify which employer brand factors, i.e. culture, product, flexibility, have the most attraction power in each job family. Improving the convincing element of employer branding will also be enhanced by the addition of multiple life work scenarios from the metaverse. Each of these will allow potential applicants to truly feel and experience what it's like to work here as a member of our team. That is how we would leverage it for employer branding. So what you just explained is really taking a page out of what currently happens in consumer marketing right? It's no accident on how products are managed to us as consumers. Absolutely, this is a tool that recruitment or talent acquisition should be using. But where are we going to get these tools from? Is it up to the TA team or the recruitment leader to be able to identify which tools to use? Again, the first thing that comes back to us is, oh, we can't use AI because it will be biased in taking what part of our culture, product, flexibility, or benefits is going to attract a specific job family without being biased. I think it's the opposite, right? We are making biased decisions. Let's post it on Indeed or post it on LinkedIn or whatever the case is. It's just our gut feeling. This is data-driven results, right? It's actually, in my opinion, removing bias. Using AI to make decisions of sorting through the best places to advertise and place your branding ads or your recruiting ads. Exactly. Yes. This is very different than just posting a job ad search because that's all we know how to do right now. Yeah. This is uh, another level shit because most of us are still trying to figure out where to post our jobs and how to write our job ads. We still haven't figured that out. Well, there you go. AI to ensure, first of all, that you understand what to title your job as and how to write a better job ad itself. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you bring that up because that's the next topic of how AI could be used. AI will allow you to sculpt 
job titles. Most job titles are created without fully understanding the attraction value of the different possible titles. We all know that, right? An AI-driven process can sort through the results from your A-B testing on a possible job title choices to determine which exact job title has the most attraction power for top candidates. Yes. It's marketing 101, right? Understand your audience. If your audience are job seekers and you're calling something a technician when job seekers call it something else, I know it sounds simple, but it is mind-blowing. I know you see this day in, day out with people yeah. just simply posting a job title with no thought to how your audience identifies themselves. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. We both talked about it. Yes, it's part of regular consumer marketing. We talk about the adoption of AI and different tools in other parts of the business. We still haven't figured it out without technology. Is AI going to help us finally figure it out? Because what we're doing is not working. I think we can all agree with that. Yes, absolutely. There's a couple of things that you might really enjoy here. Uh, and this is one that I thought was extremely important is AI will allow you to use only the most predictive job requirements. Right now, how we look at job requirements is that we go look at other jobs on Indeed or on other sites and we copy and paste the job requirements. And I've done that before. We've all done it. But imagine this. Imagine this. Machine learning will study every success and failure for each job in the future to determine which specific hiring requirements do or do not accurately predict on the job success for each critical job. Think about having a requirements list that actually matches what you do and is exactly the skills that you need to have to be successful in that role. That would improve dramatically compared yeah. to what we're doing right now. The other one, and this has already started, right? It's been going on for a while. For a lot of people, they have the perception that every ATS and every resume that is rejected by a resume bot. And there's obviously been glares in this, but doing it on a human basis, we're not getting to most of the job seekers that are applying to jobs. We're either ghosting them or we're going so quickly that we might be missing some of the top candidates. The critical step of resume sorting could have a much higher accuracy rate than we have right now. And a lot of people are going to say, well, we're taking the human out of it. Yes, the human is not doing a great job. And if there's a way to be a whole lot more efficient with it, as long as we can remove bias around this particular process, I think this is the future. It's already here. Like with a lot of these new players, it's definitely something that you see in the new ATS that are coming out or the new talent management platforms, I should say. Yeah. And considering what you mentioned right off the top here is the fact that job seekers also are frustrated with the process. They've built workarounds where it becomes a numbers game. I'm going to apply to 200 jobs in one day how does a job seeker manage any sort of responses? And job seekers that do that, they clog up the system. They really do. I don't know how their algorithms are working, but they're clogging up the system for others. But we've conditioned people to do this. Yeah. Like to drag somebody through this long process. Well, of course, somebody's going to come up with a tool, like a shotgun, 
don't even point it, don't even aim it, like just send out 200 applications and hope something sticks. It's physically impossible without the use of technology. It's absolutely impossible. Yeah, we've gone from ATS that it takes two hours to fill out an application. And we look at a player like Indeed being like, we need to fix this. And they have fixed it with the quick apply in a lot of cases, but then they realize they are getting hundreds of resumes. They're like, oh, we need to take a step back. We're going to introduce more screening features. So they're fixing what they cause, right? Wait a minute, search. Wait a minute. Let's think about this a little further. Did Indeed invent this or were they reacting to the way Amazon has conditioned us to expect to be served? Yeah. I, I, I don't think they're the evil genius that they're made out to be. Quite frankly, there's an entire generation of people with iPhones. And if I want to find a restaurant, I go to my phone. If I need to buy a shirt, I just go to Amazon. Like why in God's name would I ever drive for those things that I need on a regular basis? So I think it goes a little deeper than just quick apply. I think it's a matter of humans have decided like this experience needs to be no friction, right? Why did Amazon become so successful? It's the same idea. I see the similarities between the consumer flow and the recruitment flow, but the big difference, Amazon's just trying to sell as many widgets as possible. They have those widgets in stock. They're ready to go. And this is a James Ellis that I stole from. In recruitment is we're trying to get the most qualified people to apply, not the volume, right? We're not trying to sell hundreds of widgets. We've gone from a really hard process to a one-click Amazon type of experience. There's a happy medium here. And AI might be that solution. So I agree. I'm just using Indeed as the example because they've been the one that's been driving the quick apply. And now they're like, oh, maybe there is a happy medium. This is a little too much, is what I'm saying with Indeed, which I get it. Yeah, I'm going to point out just a couple more. AI could help us identify the best time to be hiring. Mm-hmm. Leveraging the data, it can tell us, okay, we should be hiring in December and August, just based on what the market, how many candidates mm-hmm. there are, how many competitors there is. AI will be able to reveal what are the odds of that potential candidate actually signing on to your agreement, leveraging what their activities are in different areas, getting an understanding of what those cue points are. Are you actually going to be able to land that highly desirable candidate or is it going to be a challenge? This is one I love. AI will help you identify your most effective recruiters. A lot of organizations, like on a sales team, it's pretty clear. We measure everything. We know exactly where they are to target. That doesn't happen in recruitment or rarely. I'm not saying it doesn't. Those are the key things. I am going to recommend anyone that's in recruitment to read this article because if we don't adopt AI and get behind it, we are going to be replaced by other business people and other recruiters coming into the spot that are going to have a deep understanding of how AI can impact recruitment. Yes, absolutely. Some great points. Dr. John Sullivan, he's a thought leader. And this is written to get us talking. Let's think about this. Let's start talking about it. Hats off to Dr. Sullivan. Yes. Let's jump into the next insight. What you got for me? I got something for you here. Tell me, Serge, if you look at resumes, are you looking at resumes for one, the purpose of 
are they qualified, or two, trying to find out where they could be lying. As a recruiter, what approach do you take when you're looking at resumes? When I look at resumes, the biggest thing that I'm trying to initially figure out is if they're qualified, 100%. Interesting, interesting. So there's an article on SHRM. SHRM is like the largest governing body of human resource professionals, not recruiters. Um, But they wrote an article of how to spot a lie on a resume. And I saw this and I'm like, only an HR person would write this. Because a recruiter is looking for what's right on the resume and not where they're lying. Because I believe HR people are trained from probably the first class that they ever took is that your role is to figure out what people are doing wrong and fix it. This article talks about the things that that you should be doing to spot a lie. And I was just like, oh my God, like somebody needs to talk to the person who wrote this article. Because one of the things that they're recommending is that you web sleuth. <laughs> like, okay, if you've not checked lately, you can't unsee what somebody's posted on Facebook or Twitter and make that decision whether or not the person's going to be a good cultural fit for you. But this article is actually advising it. I'm like, okay. And to question people's dates on their resumes, to see if their employment dates get confusing and do they make sense. This is the number one reason HR should stay in their lane and don't try and recruit. These are all things that you know, you need to take with a grain of salt when you're looking at resumes. What were your first thoughts when you read this article of how to catch Well, yeah, I agree with you. If you look at HR, compliance is one of the critical elements, right? It's kind of in their DNA. And as recruiters, we're like, let's find the right person and we'll figure it out after. We're a little bit more focused on, on the good instead of the potential bad. So reading this article, I was like, oh, this is web sleuthing. Oh, bullshit. Date alignment curiosities. I'll tell you, if you ask me right now, if I looked in my resume, I'm pretty sure the dates are wrong. Like I, I'm guessing, I think I quit this date. Yeah. Like it might've been May. And I remember being called out for it. It says you started in May, but you actually started in June. And I'm like, are you so, kidding me? Like, oh my God. Sorry. I think I quit yeah. the 21st. It just turned me off that really you're coming back to me and questioning if I'm telling the truth because I screwed up like two weeks on a resume of a job I worked six years ago. Like, come on, give me a break. But then you look at other things like if you see a big advancement, so they got promoted to a big yeah. role, like start questioning that. Are they copy and pasting the job description into their resume? Like these are all bullshit in my opinion. But Shelly, our number one goal is to provide qualified candidates based on the role to the hiring manager. And we should be looking at obvious flaws and lies in our discussion. If we're having a discussion with a candidate and something is fishy, I think you have to explore it deeper and you explore it deeper by asking the questions, not accusing, but trying Mm -hmm. to figure out what the real truth is. If you're flat out exaggerating what you've done, yeah, you need to be called out on that. But on that note, I want to tell you a funny story of what one lady does. She's created all these LLCs under her name and then given her all these titles. 
She puts that on her resume. And when they call the company, which is a legit, but not really legit, she has like her husband give the reference. Yes, she was a VP of sales, was able to drive this much revenue. And she even went further being like, hey, I got another offer from this company and I'll send it to you. She wrote her own offer letter with 30K more than the other company was offering and sent it to them. Can you match this? So people are clever. Well, I agree. If in your span of recruiting, you have one in a hundred, or is this something chronic that we need to write an article on SHRM about being suspicious on people's resumes? Like, I I think it was very self-serving. And when we looked at who wrote the article, well, okay. So she's trying to sell some software that's going to suss out deep fakes Oh, okay. okay. I didn't realize that. I didn't look her up at all. I just read the article. Well, you know so. what? I think Sherm needs to up their game on who they let publish, especially Sherm allowing someone to publish something that is truly self-serving. Anyways, next topic, changing subjects, but staying on the same track. There's a lot of talk about internal mobility, meaning do you have a career path where you are? If you're going to leave your employer outside of your boss is an ass and treats you like garbage outside of that people who are good performers, not saying top performers, I'm saying good workers care about what they do. Why would they leave? Well, maybe after two years, there's nothing more for me to learn. And they can't see that there's any path of where I could go. This was a specific survey on ere.net. And it was talking about the fact that talent acquisition doesn't give a lot of weight to internal mobility as part of a solution. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? Because you would think, and I've heard this argument again and again, that talent acquisition should consider internal candidates if they apply to the job. But a lot of the times there continues to be a mismatch of who internally is applying. So I think TA teams have just learned over time that internal mobility, there's very little value in it to fill roles. What do you think? Well, when I think of internal mobility, I look at it at the perspective of a job seeker, exactly how you describe is if they're going to join your company, what are the opportunities? And we know from the data that job seekers are saying that is a key for them to change jobs. Mm -hmm. But usually what happens is recruitment, talent acquisition has really no say, no involvement when it comes to internal employee development and mobility. So we don't put a lot of weight behind it because we can't control it. But unfortunately, what's happening is it's removing a major attraction driver for potential candidates that if we had a clear plan or at least a framework of this is how it's going to look for internal mobility in this company, it's going to help you in your recruitment efforts. I can see why recruiters in that service don't put a high effort because they have little influence on it almost no influence in most organizations. What I would say Mm -hmm. to recruiters is like, force the issue as much as you can with your HR and leadership team that we need a framework around what internal mobility looks like, because I need this to sell that top candidate that you really want. I need to tell him a story. I need to showcase that we care about it. 
Like how many organizations have you ever worked with or even talked to that really have a clear internal mobility plan? Very few. There are some who have done a good job. Like I think of Pepsi or CETA, where they actually have a roadmap of where you could potentially go. Because outside of the ones that I've seen do it really well, which is very few, they have a big advantage when they're recruiting in the market if they are doing it well. Because we know that most of the time, if you want a promotion, you need to quit. I think this article said 80% of job changes is going from one employer to another. And that's after every two or four years. That is a shame that you have to quit to get a promotion. On that note, Shelly, I'm jumping on to Job Board Con with Chris Russell. It's a conference that he has virtually every year. For everyone listening, thank you so much for listening. And Shelly, thank you for thank everything. Thank Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. out.